0: We're a partner men can count on. Contact Cordell, Cordell Cordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome into the Denver Nuggets Daily Podcast. I am your host, TJ McBride. You can find all my work on Twitter at nba or on MileHighSports.com. I have a very special guest today. All the way from Utah, Tony Jones of the Salt Lake Tribune covers the Jazz in their entirety over there. You're on to talk about all of the chaos that kind of surrounds the Denver Nuggets and the Utah Jazz. There are so many things that connects this team that I really can't wait to get into this because it's all controversial. It's all p- pisses fans off to the Highest extreme, every little bit about these two teams, and I'm just really looking forward to get into this. First of all, how's your day been, man?
1: The day's been good. Um, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, and I'm really excited for this podcast. Um, you know, just sitting here and, and waiting to uh, go to <laughs> practice and, and kind of get get everything over.
0: What's the vibe around that team right now? It seems like guys are real loose and real happy, and just kind of like there's no pressure on them right now.
1: Yeah, I think I think the mood is, is really losing, really happy for them. At the same time, it's still um, really competitive. This team has been with a chip on its shoulder um, for for much of the year, um, for some obvious reasons. And, and and I think you know now that they they see that the job that they set out to do is is within reach, that they really want to get, uh, they really want to get that job done.
0: Yeah, and the Nuggets and the and the Jazz right now, the Jazz are now in the seventh seed. They're a half game ahead of Minnesota, who is now falling out as well. But it's really been Utah and Denver fighting for this. But the optics are so different because the Jazz had no pressure come into this. They were expected to kind of fall off and start rebuilding with the loss of Gordon Hayward, obviously. But Donovan Mitchell has just entirely changed the equation. Is it mostly to do with the fact that Donovan Mitchell has become such a floor spacer, such a guy that you can just give the ball to and he can make plays for others or for himself? Or was this just a fact that Rudy Gobert was injured for a good chunk of time, so we really didn't get to see how talented this team actually was. In your opinion?
1: Well, I think that, you know, that, I, I think the first thing, you know, when I when when you say, I mean, there's no pressure. I, I don't think there was any pressure from the outside of the locker room, but I think that there was pl- plenty of pressure um, that the, that the guys placed on themselves, and and, and I think. You know, with Rudy Gobert and, and people like Joe Angles, I mean, those guys are really, really competitive. You know, so this team never thought of themselves as a lottery team. And and I think that that helped them uh, even through uh, when they started the season 19 and 28. And, and I think that the turnaround of this season, as good as Donovan Mitchell has been, um, coincides with, with Rudy Gobert basically playing you know, like an all-star and and an all-NBA type of center. I mean, he's been, you know, really ridiculously good uh, in the last 27 games, which the Jazz have won 23 of them. And, you know, his progress defensively coupled with, you know, some of the strides that he's made offensively as a role guy, um, he's he's really been a dominant force uh, in the middle on both sides of the floor.
0: So Denver is a weird situation in this because they did have all of the expectations on them to basically make the playoffs. This was the year that all the youth was supposed to come together. They finally had Michael Malone a few years into his tenure. They really had things about ready to click, and then they signed Paul Millsap. Obviously, things are falling out of that woodwork pretty quickly. Denver is now two games out of the playoffs and I, how bad of an optics is it from a team who is in the division, but you don't follow the Nuggets on a day-to-day basis? Is th- does this feel like a failure from an outside perspective for the Denver Nuggets to miss the playoffs?
1: Well, I think it's more uh, of... I think if the, if the Nuggets don't make a playoffs, I think it's more of a statement of how good this Western Conference has shaped up among the first 10 teams. And, you know, it, and, and here's the thing. I mean, I, I'm not sure... That it's a failure because you know jamal murray is in his second season and gary harris this is his breakout season and you know the the nuggets still have some some flaws um structurally in their roster you know they need a bona fide small forward and they haven't really had one all season um you know as good as will barton is you know he's he's basically a two you know gary harris is a basically a two and, and, and Jamal Murray's basically a combo, Um, you know, so, you know, combine that and the fact that, you know, they missed Paul Millsap for so much of the season. And then when he, when he did come come back, you know, you had to go through the reintegration process. You know, I'm not sure that it's this uh, object failure uh, that, that people will want to make it out to be. I mean, because, you know, I think that the other nine teams or the other eight teams in the Western Conference are really good as well. Um, and, you know, I don't think that things are dead for, for, for Denver at all. I mean, I think, you know, they're they're down to, I mean, obviously, you know, Tuesday night in, in Toronto, that's kind of a must win. They have to figure out a way to get out of this road trip, this current road trip alive. Um, but if they can do that, I mean, you know, Minnesota did everybody a solid last night. I mean, they lost to Memphis at home. You know, so I think that, you know, things are bunched up enough um that that you know the that Denver still has a chance and, and, and Nuggets fans have to realize that um you know Denver and Minnesota play each other twice down the stretch. So there there's definitely still hope there.
0: The one worry I have when it comes to Minnesota is purely the fact that if Minnesota wins one more division game, which happens to be against Utah later in the season, or if Denver even loses one of their division games, the tiebreaker is immediately locked up. The, the Nuggets will lose the tiebreaker with the Timberwolves, and that makes me very nervous considering how tight this this playoff race is. Let me ask you this. On a scale of 1 to 10, how nervous are you of the, the Denver Nuggets catching the Utah Jazz or the Timberwolves in a playoff race?
1: I mean I think if the, I think with the jazz I would probably go a five because I think that the jazz have realized one of the things that the jazz have realized that is that it's all about that their playoff viability is all about them um you know so they've done a really good job of of tuning out what's going on around them in the race and, and kind of focusing on um, what they have to do uh. Yeah. If, if that makes any sense, you know, they, you know, I mean, of course they score ball watch a little bit. Of course they, you know, they check the standing, but you know, I think that they've taken the right mindset of, you know, Hey, if we win the the games that we need to win, then, you know, we, we just have to see where we're going to be at on April 11th. And, you know, and the jazz is, have put themselves in a position where where they can get some breaks, and they've put themselves in a position, um, you know, by going 23-4 and in the last 27 games where they've they've set themselves up with a a bit of a margin for error. You know, so they have big games coming up. I mean, uh, there's a big game Wednesday against Boston for the Jazz. Um, The Jazz lost to to Atlanta last week, so the Friday against Memphis is a big game. All of it is a big game. Um, And obviously, you know, at Minnesota uh, on Sunday is going to be really huge for them as well. So it'll be interesting to see how the Jazz figure, fare down the stretch. But, you know, I think that they're trying to look forward instead of looking behind, if that makes any sense.
0: No, it absolutely does, but let's get into, Let's get out of the woodworks of all the playoff pictures and all the math equations and all that crap. I want to get into talking about the differences and the similarities of these two teams, because both of them are building around young cornerstone st- centers, obviously in very different capacities, but then they also have 21-year-old lead guards that are very young in their own right. Jamal Murray does have an extra year of experience at the NBA level on him, but... At the same time, there is a lot of similarities between a Donovan Mitchell and a Jamal Murray. The fact that both of them are more combo guards than pure point guards. The fact that both of them can hit threes, but they also have a game off the bounce when they can really be able to make plays for other people and themselves, even if it is still developing. My question to you is, let's just get it all out there. First and foremost, would you rather start building a team around Donovan Mitchell or a guy like Jamal Murray?
1: I'd I'd probably rather start building a team around Donovan Mitchell. Yeah. I'd probably take it probably out of it um you know for a couple of reasons you know I think donovan's feeling um athletically is a bit higher than Jamal's um I think donovan's proven himself to be a better defender um than than Murray has and and you know the other thing i mean and the other thing is you know Donovan's got a mentality about him that's not dissimilar. Jamal. Jamal has that same kind of mentality, um, but Donovan has a mentality about him that that's that's really impressive in terms of how competitive he is, and it's it's kind of Russell Westbrook esque in terms of you know he doesn't care who's in front of him. He's he's trying he's trying to go at that person um, for 48 minutes. You know. And that being said, I really really like Jamal Murray. I I've always really liked Jamal Murray. I like them. You know, as a high school guy, I like him at Kentucky. I, I really like him more now. He's shown a lot more of uh, of a game off the dribble than he's had in the past. When he was in Kentucky, he was a lot more catch and shoot, a lot more come off screen, you know, one bounce, two bounce, get to the basket. But this year, you can you can clearly see uh, how well he's developed his game off the dribble. Um you know, and he's and he's a guy who, like Donovan, he's a killer. I mean, he's trying to, trying to go at you on the floor, um, you know, for 48 minutes. And and I, you know, that's a really endearing quality because there are, there aren't that many people, there aren't that many guys in the league who have that quality. So when you do have that quality, it's kind of special. Um, you know, it, it it'll be interesting to see how Jamal um... developed uh, and obviously it would be interesting to see how Donovan de- develops, but if you had to ask me today I, I, I'd take Donovan um, as a guy that I, that I would uh, build around.
0: I actually agree with that. I, I, As much as I love Jamal Murray, and I, I don't want this to be a let's bash Jamal Murray party because Jamal's been great this year in his second year. He's averaging like almost 17 a game. He's been a whole another level of shooting, but I do agree with you that the defense and the ability for the fact that he just walked in as a rookie, which doesn 't make sense that lead guards in the in the Western Conference of all places in the Northwest Division of all places can come in and start producing like this immediately. but what I thought was so interesting that you said was that personality that mindset of being a killer from what i 've read and gathered, and i haven 't talked to donovan personally i haven 't had a chance to really get to know him but it, he does seem like more of a laid-back, goofy guy in the locker room. He doesn't necessarily seem like a killer like he is on the court. Obviously, on the court, he has all of the ice in his veins you could ever hope for in a player his age. I mean, you see what he did against San Antonio. But at the same time, isn't he a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more, what's the term? I guess just goofy and funny and more fluid off the court?
1: Yeah, he definitely is. And, you know, the word I'd use, you know, with them, I mean, he's he's. he's respect- He's respectful and he's, a thing, you know, he has a, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, for everything that he is on the floor in terms of, in terms of uh, his mentality off the floor, I mean, he couldn't be a nicer guy. Um, you know, he's, he's super nice and, you know, he, he's, um, you know, he, he has this air about him. You know, where I think that, you know, he's a leader, but at the same time, you know, he has a humbleness about him as well. And it is that's probably one of the most um, impressive traits about him um, is, is how he is off the floor uh, and how seamlessly that he's fit into uh, to Utah's locker room. Because, you know, there, it, that, that locker room kind of tends not to be sometimes an easy place for rookies to be. I mean, you know, they have acting backpacks. I mean, there's, you know, there's, you know, a lot of...
0: <laughs> the backpacks teammates. are always so there's funny.
1: ...going on a lot. And, you know, there's there's a hierarchy. I mean, as there is in most NBA locker rooms. Um, you know, but Donovan has, has, has really fit in with his teammates. And, and he's figured out a way to, to be a leader on the floor while at the same time being deferential to um, his older teammates. Uh, in the locker room, and it's a balance that I'm not sure that I've ever seen a rookie um, be able to to accomplish a seamless attempt. So, you know that that part of, about him it 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 makes his teammates want to follow him um, on the floor for the way he acts off the floor as well. So that's that's really good on him for 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 finding that that balance in his rookie in his rookie
0: season. It's funny, because Jamal Murray has a lot of those same similar qualities where he is kind of goofy off the court, but he does. He has that that look on his face where you're like, I'm not going to talk to that dude while he's warming up. There's nothing I could ever say to him that would like, he would want to hear while he's warming up kind of guys. And I'm not sure if Donovan's that same guy. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing or how different it's actually going to be, but I do feel like there are, you know, key differences in the way that they look at the game and look at life and the way that they approach it. I'm so curious to see how they kind of play out. So much of this conversation is just wait and see, and it drives me crazy because I can't wait to see where these guards are in this Northwest Division later on in the rest of their careers, but the part I wanted to get to about Donovan Mitchell and for that fact Jamal Murray are their work ethics because I go back to what Thibodeau said about I believe Jimmy Butler where he said there's just you can't put a value on guys who consistently get better the leap that Donovan has taken this year just even from Louisville last year and even from Louisville until the combine and then from the combine until you get to summer league and then summer league to now there has been a transformation within him what kind of work ethic do we not get to see from our picture of Donovan Mitchell uh, you know in the Utah Jazz practice. Facility around these vets, trying to get better every single day.
1: Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's been amazing um, to see what he's been able to do. And you know, I I remember I remember his first month. You know, first couple of weeks. You know, he was. It, it wasn't that he was missing shots. It was the way he was missing shots. You know, he would try to get all the way to the basket and. and you know, challenge DeAndre Jordan, or he would, you know, he would, you know, he was trying to do some of the same things that he did athletically in college, which, you know, naturally, it, it just wasn't going to work in the league. So, you know, he watched a whole bunch of film, um, you know, and he's worked really tirelessly with assistant coach Johnny Bryant, um, and he's developed, and, and he developed at, um, He's developed at an insanely fast pace. You know, he, if you watch him, or if you watch a game of his today, you know, he'll get into the lane, uh, he'll get a defender on his backside, or he'll, he's he got a cerebralness in the lane to him, you know, where he can put up a floater or he can figure out a way to get to the basket and, and try to, you know, try to do, the, do an underhand scoop at the rim. You know, he didn't have any of that. Um, at the beginning of the season. He didn't have any of that at training camp. It was you know, at training camp it was he was either gonna pull up the three or he was gonna try to get all the way to the basket. Um you know and he, and he's figured out a way to have an in between game. You know, he figured out some he he's he figured out stuff that usually it takes um guards of his size two or three years to figure out. And, you know, he's done it in six months. And, and and that kind of contributed to, you know, how well he's he's been able to score the basketball this season. So, you know, his his work ethic, you know, he's he's always um, he, he's always there shooting. You know, I remember, you know, he went through a shooting slump about a month ago. Uh, he came off right off of a road trip, went straight to the to, to the uh, facility at two in the morning. And got shots up. I mean, he's, he's just a guy who's consistently trying to get better um, at his craft. And, and for somebody that's 21 years old, that that's amazing to see.
0: All right, I think that's enough about the lead guards. We we've hammered the hell out of them. Let's get into this center debate because I love this conversation. You're basically conflicting two different entirely, you know, thought processes of an offensive savant who creates everything at a higher efficiency and and you know, an easier ability to create offense in Nikola Jokic, but you have the deterrence and just the domination down low of a guy like Rudy Gobert. At this point, obviously you cover a defensive-minded team. I mean, Quinn Snyder's the head coach, but do you put more value in shot creation or shot deterring, in your opinion, just as an overall evaluator?
1: Well, I think, you know, in, in, in the case of this, this question, I mean, I think it depends on, A, what your system is, and B, um, you know, how, how well-rounded both of those guys are. And, and here's the thing with the NBA. I mean, nobody's ever won an NBA championship without stopping anybody. You know, no. You know, you can look at you couldn't agree more. And you know, you can look at them. They average 110 points a game. They outscore everybody, but they stop people. And you know, and, and when you know, last year and the year before, I mean, they were the best defensive team in the league. You know, so nobody's ever won an NBA championship. You know, 95 percent and 5 percent defense. There has to be a there has to be a balance there, and I think that you know that's something that, that Rudy Gobert has, has figured out figured out how to, how to strike. I mean, he's he's, uh, in my estimation, he's the best defender in the league. Um, but he's also somebody who's figured out a way to be impactful offensively. And he wasn't impactful offensively when he came into the league, um, but now he's 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 absolutely impactful offensively.
0: He's in the 97th percentile offensively, according to Synergy. When I looked up that number, I was staggered at what he was able to do. And obviously, it's very limited in the way he plays. He's a rim roller, he's an offensive rebounder, and he cuts. Like, that is what he does as an offensive player, but he does it so damn well that you can't really get away from that. I I completely agree with you. I think that he's been much better offensively than people really want to give him credit for. Well, the the
1: thing that, that you didn't say that he is, he's a screen setter. And, and he's the best screen setter in the league. And that, that one attribute actually fuels Utah's offense because, you know, when he sets screens, the, those ball handlers, they come off their screens 95% of the time, they have separation. And when, you know, you, I've, I've seen my share of bad screeners where, you know, the ball handler comes off and there's no separation and the defender is right there. When ball handlers come off of Rudy Gobert Springs, there's clear separation, so you can get they can get into the lane, and they can either they can either get to the basket or they can pull a mid range. Or you know, there's gravity that 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 Gobert causes coming down the middle of the lane. I mean, it, it's just he's just really effective and and impactful in, in Utah's offense. So the question with Jokic is that. Uh, as good as he is offensively and he's really 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 good offensively you know how impactful defensively does he become um and in, in the subsequent in the subsequent seasons and and that's the question I have with with
0: Jokic. It's such a hard question to answer too because then you start getting into how do you define what makes a good defender because in isolation I don't care who you put one-on-one with him Jokic is going to look very stupid if you put him out on the perimeter against a guard in an isolation setting it's just never going to work. What does work well with him especially when he's paired with Paul Millsap is that the rebounding rate goes up and the foul rate goes down. So they are ending possessions quickly on the defensive end but they're also not fouling guys they're not giving away Three points. And they also contest a hell of a lot of shots when they're together, too. I think that's the only way you're going to get Nikola Jokic to be a passable defender. It's that Marcus, Gasol, you know, school of thought of don't foul, you know, make sure you contest every shot and do your work early positionally. And I think that's the only way you're ever going to get him to get to a passable level. And that requires so much engagement. And for somebody who, let's be real, is not in the best shape of their life or an NBA shape type of a body, he, he exerts so much energy offensively. It's hard to get him to buckle down for 48 minutes and defend at that level with his mind and with his body the way he does offensively. That's the biggest drawback for Nikola Jokic right now, and I think once he can figure out how he can adapt and give effort on both ends of the floor and be able to think his way through the game defensively, he'll be able to take quite a leap forward, in my opinion.
1: Well, there, there are two things that that I think um, that I think are wrong uh, around Jokic defensively, and, and you know, and it's not all of his fault I mean if you're going to have so, if, if you look at Stephen Curry and you look at what Golden State does they're like okay well Stephen, well, we got Stephen Curry and he's not going to stop anybody so what we're going to do is we're going to build around him defensively and that's what Golden State's been able to do and Houston looked at James Harden and they like okay he's never stopping anybody like he's not even going to try but guess what he's one of the top five impactful offensive players in the league. So what we have to do, our job is to build around James Harden defensively. So they got went out and got one of the best point guard defenders in the league, one of the best point guard defenders of all time. They have, they have a big defensive wing in Trevor Ariza, and they have a rim, press, rim protector in um, and, and Clint Capella. So Denver has to build around Jokic defensively. And that's where the roster isn't structurally there yet. Um, you know, as it so Gary Harris is a very good defender. And, you know, he's an awesome two-way player. I think he's going to be an all-star one at some point. Jamal Murray has to take the challenge and stop people and stop other point guards. But they have a need for a big defensive wing. Like we have a need for air. And, <laughs> and, you know, and that's something that, that Denver has to figure, figure out. And for how good Paul is defensively, Paul's defensively positionally, he's not really a rim protector. So there's no rim protection, and there's, 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 there's no wing stopper right now. So, you know, and I think that those are flaws that, that have really hurt Denver. And I don't think it is all on Jokic because I think you look at Jokic and you say, okay, we're building around him offensively, but you know he's, you know, at best he's probably going to be an average defender if he really takes a challenge. So we have to build around him defensively as well, and I think that, that that's a stride that the, the front office has to take and 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 provide Michael Malone and and the, and the rest of their roster uh, with with uh, more defensive pieces.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect segue because we're going to get into the draft day trades right now. And we'll hit on that in that segment. But what I really want to talk about real quick is this is why I would take Donovan Mitchell ahead of Jamal Murray defensively, according to Synergy, Mitchell is an 82nd percentile defender. That's a ridiculously good number for a lead guard as a rookie. Jamal Murray is in the 8th percentile. That is atrocious. That is abysmal. That is awful. Every terrible adjective you could use, you can use for Jamal Murray's defense. And when you don't have anybody defending at the point of attack, Nikola Jokic, whether he's dropping or hedging, is basically just a sitting duck for a two-on-one game to annihilate him, no matter who it is. I mean, any pick-and-roll team can really get over Nikola Jokic if it's two on one and you have no point of attack defense whatsoever so I do completely agree with you that there is a roster issue here with Nikola Jokic's defense and a lot of it has to do with Jamal Murray not giving everything he has at the point of attack defensively and that has led to just a complete I I don't even know just a walkway into the lane for the Nuggets a lot of times if they're not hedging hard and it has just been bad a couple times watching that You still there, by the way? Sorry, this this construction is crazy in here, so I have to keep muting in and out. But, by the way, if you're hearing a bunch of crazy noises, there is drilling happening literally above my head in the studio right now, so sorry if you're hearing that the whole way through. But let's get into these draft day trades, because everybody, that's what everyone wants to talk about when the Nuggets and Jazz become a topic of conversation. Everybody wants to talk about how the Nuggets sent Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, who they picked for the Jazz, which just isn't necessarily true, that basically Gave you guys your entire core that you are now building around. What are your optics of that situation as someone who covers the Jazz and not the Nuggets?
1: Well, I think the thing with, with Rudy Gobert, I, I think that was more the Jazz um, because, you know, I think that the, the Jazz had Rudy Gobert was, was raw stupid um, in that free draft workout. And but the Jazz had him in Gang uh, of the Minnesota Timberwolves, and you know the, the, his competitiveness really endeared himself to uh, none other than Jerry Snow, and who was in that workout, and and the Jazz, you know, really they really thought, okay, if we can develop this guy, he can be something. You know, his his physical attributes are elite, but you know he you know, really a project. And, you know, I don't think anybody realized how, could have predicted how good Rudy Gobert um, would be. So, you know, even when, you know, Eric Green was a good player just back that year. Um, and, you know, he was a guy who, you know, who could take a chance on. Um um, it just turned out to be Rudy Gobert into uh, a ball. They died. Um, but that was the jazz. Rudy Gobert really, really, really working hard, you know, because Rudy Gobert really did start at kind of ground zero in terms of his game. Um, you know, the only thing he had to work, had working for him was, was his athleticism. Um, the thing with Donovan Mitchell, you know, it's, it, you know, first of all, the Jazz really recognized what Mitchell was when they had him in for the workout, but, you know, there were a couple teams that passed on Mitchell who really should have taken Mitchell. Like, the Knicks should have taken Mitchell. Um, they should have taken Mitchell at 8. I
0: still Except can't believe they eight. didn't.
1: Um, Charlotte should have taken Mitchell at 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 11 instead of Malik Monk. and Detroit certainly should have taken Mitchell at 12 um, rather than Luke Kennard. Um you know, so, you know, there were a couple of teams that passed, that passed on Mitchell. And I think, you know, I understand where Denver was in, in terms of um, where they were with their backcourt. You know, what is it, feel, you know, how the, the Jazz did the same thing a couple of years ago when they had Rodney Hood, um, to be their starting two guards. So they passed on Devin Booker and they took Trey Loud. Um, you know, so I, I the Jazz, it's... It, did basically did the same thing that Denver did. Um you know and I and I understand why Denver did pass on on Mitchell because you know they had a backcourt. But at the same time, you know, what if Denver had Mitchell and Murray and Harris right now and they could put them all on the floor in the same at the same time around Nicola Jokic and, and Paul Millsap. I mean, it would have you know they they be Really, really good. You know, for you know, as, as small as Mitchell is, he's six foot three. He's proven that he can guard some small forward. So, you know, it. I understand what Denver did, but you know, it's it, 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 it's something that that Mitchell was good enough that I think that they probably should have overlooked that, taking him anyway.
0: Yeah, I actually asked Arturas Karnisovas, the Nuggets general manager that night, about why they didn't take Donovan Mitchell with that 13th pick and why they traded out of it. And he flat out told me, he was like, we've taken four guards in three drafts. Like, at some point, you can't keep accumulating guards and drafting guards in every single draft. So the Nuggets were never going to take Donovan Mitchell, even if he fell all the way to 24. He just wasn't on their radar. He wasn't a guy that they were going to buy into. So they were never going to reach for him anyway. When it comes to the Rudy Gobert trade, I mean, the 27th pick, you don't exactly expect much from. In addition to that, the Nuggets were trying to clear the books. They had just fired George Carl, had a brand new front office implemented that had about three days to be able to prepare for the draft. And then once they went in there, they needed spacing. So they traded out of that 27th pick, cleared some money, and then got Eric Green, who led the, I believe, led the nation in scoring that year for Virginia Tech. So it does make sense when you look back to the optics of what was happening happening in 2013 about what the Nuggets were trying to accomplish, even though when you look ahead, obviously with the hindsight that we have, that Rudy Gobert turned into somebody who could potentially be an MVP candidate in the next, you know, 10 years, potentially, depending on how his offensive game continues to round out and flourish. So it is hard to stomach it. I think the part that makes me more frustrated than anything is that you traded from 27th to 46th basically just for cash. That will never, ever just kill me on the inside that guys and teams still play trade picks for cash just to move back. It drives me absolutely insane, but at the same time, I get it. It is what it is. When it comes to the to that Donovan Mitchell trade, though, the Nuggets were absolutely inclined to try and draft OG Ananobi at 24. They thought that he would have fallen, which was, in hindsight, again, a terrible decision, being that Masai Ujiri and the Raptors were at 23. You're telling me a long-limbed, freakishly athletic, but with some injury concerns wing is available that? that Masai Ujiri is not going to take him, I think that is a bet that you should never, ever bank on. And while the Nuggets made these decisions you know, with uh, the correct thought process, the execution, I thought, is really what left a lot to be desired, and that is what has left this fan base just angry. This Nuggets fan base will never, ever let go that Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are not only on another team, but on a team that is in the division of the Denver Nuggets as well. Uh, do, you, do you find any fault in that thought process at all?
1: Was, like, the, the fault I find in the thought process is okay. You know, you traded Donovan Mitchell for, for Trey Lyles, who I actually, you know, I was pretty high on because I really love his ball skills, especially for his size, you know, and I thought that he just needed a, a, a change of scenery. I mean, I, I thought Trey and the Jazz really just kind of fell out last year.
0: Yeah, and Man. Tim Connolly valued him very, very highly as well. Yeah. That's one of the guys he had coveted since the draft when he was actually picked by the Jazz. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, and and you know he was a guy who was who was very talented. Now, so where I went wrong, where I was like confused is, okay, why are you drafting Tyler Lydon at twenty four? Okay, even if OG's off the board, you gotta draft somebody else. Like <laughs> you,
0: yeah, you're not wrong.
1: Basically, the same guy was the guy you just traded for. You traded a lottery pick for. And and you know, and I think that that was you know, that was that was what left me with a head scratcher because now you got a million power for now you have a million power forward and you have no and you have no win. Yeah. Um you know, so that w- that was kind of where, you know, where I kind of you know, just kind of scratched my head. I mean I would have gone with you know, Kuzma or I would have gone with Josh Hart. Um, you know, there were there are a number of different ways uh that I thought that that uh Denver could have gone other than Tyler Ryden, who I don't who I really frankly don't think is a very good fact.
0: Yeah, I can tell you why they went with it. The Nuggets just, you know how certain teams just put a value on certain traits if it's kind of just a best player available in the middle of the draft kind of portion? The Nuggets just value shooting, they value work ethic, and they value high character guys. And on top of that, he showed a little bit of shot blocking at Syracuse. They were like, you know what, maybe we can get three-point shooting size and shot blocking in a guy who just happens to be a very good dude. Uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with that logic, but that is the logic that the Nuggets front office uses to be able to kind of weed through everybody and kind of find the guys that they can draft when everything goes wrong like it did for the Nuggets on that draft night.
1: Yeah, and I understand that. Um, you know, but Kyle Kuzma gives you the same thing. He's a part of three.
0: Yeah, Jordan Bell for the for the that same reason he went in the second round. I mean, he would have been so great behind Paul Millsap as a guy learning under the tutelage of Paul Millsap as a shot blocking power forward who can stroke it every once in a while. Like he he would have been great. Semi Ojele would have been great. Like there's a lot of different guys in this draft that I would have much rather had. You should have seen me in the Nuggets press lounge screaming, throwing things at the wall. Like there were so many like combo forwards, combo wings that were right there just for the taking, and they went with Tyler Lydon, Which again, the more and more I watch him, I do think that there is some game in there, but it did. my thought process did not start that way. Definitely started more of, wow, there's a lot of guys who could have helped you right now, and you went with Tyler Lydon, who is now out with knee surgery for the rest of the season, so I totally understand where you're going with that, and it, it was absolutely frustrating and confusing when you see Tyler Lydon's name pop up at 24 and not a guy like Semi-Ogele or Jordan Bell.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing with Tyler Lydon is this, okay? If- he becomes a good player in this league, who does he become a good player at the expense of? And the answer to that would be Trey Lowe, because those two are redundant, and you can't play one of them at the three because neither of them can guard the position. So, you know, that that's the thing. I mean, there, there, there was just a sort of redundancy um, there that I, I just thought that, that, you know, you just... I mean, it was the same, you basically drafted the same guy that you traded
0: for. Yeah, it was a, it was a panic move for sure. That, that That's the gist that I got from this draft, is that everything fell apart at the last second, and they suddenly found themselves having no idea who to pick, which is all 100% a detriment and a problem that this Nuggets front office had to deal with, because they did. They, they fell apart at the end of that draft situation for sure. Yeah, well, I, I do
1: think, you know, I, I do think that Trey has, has been good this season, and I think that he's resurrected his career. Now, obviously, you know, you know, Paul came back, so so you know his his minutes have have decreased. Um, but for a while, at the in in you know in December and January, I mean, he was really really playing well, um, and he was playing well off the bench, you know. And I think that he's a guy who could, at some point, be a starter for them.
0: I actually agree with that. I think Trey Lyles has been significantly underrated for how much he's brought to this team. Even his fourth quarter scoring, the Nuggets wouldn't even be in this playoff picture if it wasn't for like the random games where he would stroke three threes in the fourth quarter when Paul Millsap was hurt with his wrist injury to kind of keep the Nuggets afloat. There were so many moments where the Nuggets don't last in the season unless, Paul Mills- or unless Trey Lyles comes through for them on both ends of the floor, actually. That was probably my biggest surprise was that defensively, he looked significantly better this year than I expected him to look. I am ready to move into something that is near and dear to my heart, something that you wrote just a fantastic piece for on the Salt Lake Tribune, which is the Kings over Vivek comes out after Stefan Clark protesters after the life of Stefan Clark was taken due to 20 gunshots that were fired in his direction for holding an iPhone in his grandmother's backyard for no reason protesters. Developed a line of people that basically kept fa- fans out of the Golden One Center in Sacramento, basically just as a protest to bring. This situation, this terrible tragedy into light for everybody to see, what then happened after the protest may have been the most instrumental part of this entire conversation and i 'm going to let you just run with this because your piece was wonderful on this on the Salt Lake Tribune, and it was methodical, it was thought out, it was long, it was very fulfilling to read to see every single side of it. I'll just let you kind of run with it from here on out
1: yeah I mean I, I just thought that I posted the NBA. You know, really, um, I I think that the NBA has really fostered um, a community and, you know, a mindset that, you know, that that its constituents, its players, its coaches, its owners can kind of have their – can engage in the conversation. And, you know, we're in a society right now that – Really at a crossroads, you know, what are we going to be? I mean, are we going to be, you know, a society that accepts that accepts everybody, no matter what uh, the race, creed, culture, background, uh, gender, you know, religion, just anything? Are we going to be the society that that you know we that that our mission statement is based on, or are we going to be the society um, that that you know that that's currently um, that we are currently you know under the leadership of this country and you know and under the leadership of this country I mean this is why we have you know a lot of uh, the incidents that that we are having and, and you know the, the the unfortunate incident was part um you know what Vivek did in terms of you know just saying hey. We understand why you got why why you are angry, and this is a tragedy, and this should never happen um It endeared himself to the community, and I think it endeared themselves um to a lot of people around the country, myself included and you know, and I think that the n b a is was, was a real winner there in terms of you know like, hey, this is a conversation, and we should engage in the conversation and we have um and we and, and we have a directive and to, to engage in a conversation and we shouldn't run from the conversation. And and I think that the NFL can take a page out of the NBA's book there. And you know, it didn't have to be drastic, but it was a it was a simple gesture and I thought that that gesture from Vivek went a long way. And and I think that uh, I think that he was great for it and and that's what kind of inspired me to write that, that column.
0: It's so important, too, because the NBA has always fostered this community that is very open-minded and progressive and wants to help the communities, and it isn't just for its own needs. There's no selfish motives, and I think that that's what this really embodied is this shift of ownership and the way that Adam Silver has really helped kind of reshape this NBA back into this progressive Let's be honest, just not having old, rich, white owners who are basically in a completely different mind state from a completely different period of time who have led to a more poisonous and toxic situation for a lot of individuals, mostly people of color to deal with. And when you get this beautiful situation where you have a vet come up here and be like, we completely understand this plight and this battle that you are dealing with. We're not going to take a side because we don't know, but we are absolutely going to use our platform to boost your voice and when i saw that happen that that was really the comment for me that really hit to the core was that they weren't trying to pick a side they just wanted so badly for this to be known for it to be out in the world for people to have to recognize it and have to understand that Stefan Clark was shot 20 times for absolutely no reason and that was a beautiful beautiful thing and then the quote that you have in your article where Vivek says we of the kings we recognize your ability to protest peacefully and we respect that we of the kings we recognize that we have a big platform it's a privilege but it's also a big responsibility it's a responsibility that we take very seriously. And he backed that up to a T. And I just had to take a moment to make sure that Vivek and as well as yourself was shouted out for just keeping that conversation going, keeping people involved, and just getting a better understanding of the world that surrounds them and not staying in this ignorant bubble that exists far too often in our culture. So I just, again, wanted to say thank you for writing that piece. Thank you to Vivek for putting the kings. And understanding that this is a game, there's a lot more important things happening in this world around us. And for him to not only eat the bill for all the fans who did not get in, but to continue to provide that platform as you do yourself. So again, thank you to you, thank you to Vivek. Um, is there anything else you wanted to hit on for this article?
1: Um, I, you know, it was it was just really something that that you know I wrote, and, and I think from there, there some, from. Some from my heart and I thought that it was really personal for me um, you know I don't want to kind of delve too much into it and preach on it but I mean it was it, it wasn't difficult to write um, but it was it, it was difficult to write but it wasn't difficult to write um, you know but I, I just really thought that, that Vivek was really good in terms of, of what he said and, and as you said I mean he didn't pick a side um, what he just, what he did was he listened, and that was, and I think that when people are angry, I think that that's all they want you to do, whether they they agree, whether somebody agrees with you or not, you just want to be heard, and 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 the the, the community is, the Sacramento community was heard uh, last Thursday night, and that that was the biggest win to me um, of it all. So that 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 was that was why I wrote what I wrote.
0: It was, it was a beautiful piece and it was a beautiful moment for the NBA. Also, one of my favorite things ever is that you outline the article as, wow, the Kings are a garbage ownership group in terms of basketball, but they're really fantastic in terms of social awareness. I thought that was just one of my, that was one of my favorite things I've read in a long time for that reason. Um, but again, Tony, thank you so much for doing this podcast. The perspective of a jazz a guy who covers the jazz is so needed for this Nuggets fan base who was really in their own bubble, as we already kind of said. So it's definitely going to provide a lot more insight into what the inter- workings are from the draft day trade to the different guys on different teams and things like that. So again, thank you so much. Go ahead and plug everything you can possibly plug about yourself while you still have time on the podcast.
1: Um, you can find me at TripJazz T R I B J A Z Z, or, you know, my personal account, T-Jones, S-F-Trip T-J-O-N-E-S-S-L-T-R-I-B But other than that, I mean, I just just try to come out and just try to work my behind off every day. So, I really do thank you for having me on there. This this was a blast. I, I remember when uh, when you said, "Hey, you know, let's do a podcast again." I was like, "I definitely want to do
0: a podcast with TJ. So, <laughs> well, I, I really, appreciate that thank you for having me on. Oh, actually, I have two more random, stupid questions before you get out of here. I was reading your bio and it says you're a hip hop guy. So, I have to hear what's on your playlist right now.
1: Oh. Okay, so I ran four miles yesterday, so what did I have on my playlist? I had, um, I had Migos, I had Black I had uh, Biggie and Tracy Lee, I had, um, oh, who else was on that playlist? I had a bunch of Rick Ross. <laughs> um, Cause it usually takes, for four miles for me, it usually takes me about 40 minutes. So, I gotta have about 15 songs, 15 tracks.
0: Yeah.
1: So, um, I had those guys. I I had, uh, I did have a Cardi B track. (laughs) So, my daughter would have loved that. The
0: Guilty Pleasure comes out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the the Cardi B comes out. um, And I had some, uh, I had uh, Talib Kweli and, and
0: most Step. Uh, Black Star will forever be a top five for me. That album was just so, so damn incredible from yes, start to finish. It was uh, the Black Star album. Oh, okay. I love that album. I love it, Black Thought does everything. Everything he touches is gold at this point. But And then one last thing. I saw that you still play ball. Who is the player that you emulate most in pickup?
1: Uh, everybody calls me Khalid Alameen. Really? Yes.
0: I did not expect that name drop to come out of nowhere. That, that was a complete left field throw out there. That's awesome.
1: Yes, I, I tried to say Chris ball but... <laughs> They call me Khalid only.
0: So <laughs> yeah, there's,
1: there's, there's a difference, there's a difference in, in, in people's
0: opinions of my game. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Man, go get to practice. I know you still got work to do. Again, thank you so much for not only just writing that fantastic piece on Vivek, but as well as taking time for this podcast and putting out all the great work you do for the Salt Lake Tribune and this playoff push for the Utah Jazz. I hope you have so much fun for the rest of this time, but I also hope that you also get some time to sleep in the very near future. And beyond that, man, just thanks again.
1: Thank for having me, DJ. I really do, appreciate hey, it, I really appreciate Don it. Ice Sire Rock. God bless, Peter Wax, Chuck, Chuck, and El Dorado, George. way back in the day, had all
0: the brothers on the hill talking this way, to say God, have mercy, LA, Sunshine, and my DJ, Easy Lee, are from around the way, Jock,
1: Jock, Philly, Phil, and Don D all way, up there chilling, Chillin'. Chillin'. Keith, Chillin'. Keith, Keith, KV, Steve-O, Ross, Ross, and A. Fee, Bear. Ski and hung, hung. We fight but our hands and nobody's a pong